invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. We've been studying this letter to the first century church, which was written to encourage them to persevere under trials and persecution. For 10 chapters, the letter focused on the greatness of Jesus Christ and how through Him we can have peace with God and hope for today and tomorrow, how we receive forgiveness of sin, a personal relationship with God Himself, and an eternal rest. But every so often there would also be a warning about what would happen if you neglect so great a salvation, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, to quote from chapter 10, that's the path that leads to God's judgment. But chapter 10 ended on a positive note for those who don't take that path of unbelief. It says, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's this subject of having faith that becomes the focus of chapter 11. To world-weary followers of Christ, this chapter is intended to encourage us with the examples of people who have lived in this world like, like we do, have faced challenges like we do, even greater challenges. And yet, through faith, they persevered. And through faith, they received the reward. That's what whole, all of chapter 11 is about. We're going to take three weeks to go through chapter 11. We're going to dwell on this topic of faith and having faith and examples of faith so that we can be encouraged by their example. So let's read Hebrews 11, 1 through 7. And then we'll pray. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let's pray. So good to know, Lord, that what we read here in this word, this is historical. This is what has happened in this world. Before us has been a train of people going back thousands of years who have worshipped you, who have received your word, 
who have pressed in with faith and acted on that faith. And we have the record of how you kept them and how they have entered into what we call the hall of faith here. And so, Lord, we just pray for the encouragement that you want to give us through this, through this passage. That today, whatever faith is wavering, whatever questions we might have, that you might uh, convince, <laughs> persuade, change by the Holy Spirit so that we have confidence, the kind that you talk about here. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I got to flip back to page one. What does the scripture mean when it speaks about those who have faith? The phrase have faith gets used in conversation now and again. You might have said or you might have had or might have heard, you know, I have faith that everything is going to turn out okay. Or somebody might have uh, seen you uh, and exhorted you to have faith because you're particularly gloomy and pessimistic about the future. I've needed that exhortation many times because I tend that way. I tend towards pessimism. Um, I, have, uh, I remember a Dilbert comic. Uh, I don't know if that's in papers anymore. Dilbert, nobody even is recognizing that. That's not registering. There's no papers, but there's still comics, right? Okay, Dilbert cartoon. Anyway, he had one where he was comparing the optimist to the pessimist. Dilbert reads this headline in the newspaper, which says something like, there have been no murders in the city for a whole year. And then the, the optimist bubble pops up, which says, we're safe forever. And then the pessimist bubble pops up. We're due. <laughs> I thought that was funny. I can relate to the pessimist. Not even good news is enough to get us out of a slump, and bad news just confirms our worst fears. It wouldn't be wrong for somebody to exhort us to have faith. But faith in what? We can ask the same question of optimists. Optimists are more fun to be around, but what if your optimism isn't based in reality? What if, in fact, things are not going to be okay? What if your optimism is just wishful thinking? In the Scriptures, having faith is not just choosing optimism over pessimism. It's choosing to trust God rather than your own understanding. That's our first observation from the passage. Faith is trust in God rather than in your own understanding. Verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In other words, the essence of faith is confidence that something we do not see, that we can't measure or prove, is really there it's actually real, though, though our senses can't detect it. The word assurance is used, as in I am sure about this. There are things that I hope for, things that have not yet happened that I know are going to happen. The word conviction is used, as in I have a firm belief. I am convinced about the reality of certain things that are not seen, they're not visible. 
That's what faith is generally. But in the context of Scripture, that faith that's in view is a specific faith, namely faith in God, that things God has promised to believers in Jesus Christ are definitely going to happen. And things about God Himself, who is invisible, that He is actually real. And we see a summary of those things in verse 6. The text tells us that whoever would draw near to God must believe, what? That He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. He exists, though you can't see Him, and He rewards those who seek Him, who hope for things that He has promised, things like chapters 1 through 10 of Hebrews have talked about. Faith is believing those two basic categories, those two things about God. Now, we're going to expand on those aspects of faith shortly, but let's dwell for a minute on the big picture of verse 6. It tells us that the terms for drawing near to God require that we believe things that we can't prove exist by direct observation. You must believe things that you can't see. Now, for some people, that's not a hard concept to embrace. Take little kids, for example. <laughs> if a parent says to them, tonight, we are going out for ice cream, then it's as good as done. I mean, it's happening. Like, there is ice cream in my immediate future <laughs> because mom says... <laughs> Little kids have no problem with the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. They just believe what their parents tell them, at least if it's a good relationship. I think that's why Jesus said in Mark 10, 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Childlike faith believes in a parent's promise as a certainty. Though the ice cream isn't in hand, and though they haven't gone anywhere yet. That's the kind of faith that we are to have in God's promises. But when we become adults, we tend to lose that kind of trust. We can get skeptical and cynical. Promises are just possibilities, not certainties. Seeing is believing. That's, that's the modern proverb. We develop a prove-it-to-me attitude. We have a Bible, which is God's Word, and we hesitate to believe the things that are in it. We want proofs that this God exists and that His promises are true. Now, in one sense, it's not wrong to want evidence of God's, of God's existence and God's trustworthiness. Thomas wasn't wrong when he wanted to see the resurrected Jesus, he wanted to put his fingers in the nail marks. He says, unless I do that, I won't believe. Well, he wasn't totally wrong in that. The other disciples had seen him. And really, there's a lot riding on whether or not Jesus really rose from the dead. Because if there's actually a resurrection, that changes everything. And if you're going to follow this resurrected Jesus, you're going to suffer for it. And so you want to be sure. So Thomas wasn't wrong that he wanted to be sure. Did he really rise from the dead or not? He wanted to see it. But Jesus said to Thomas, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And that is what Jesus says to us today. We must believe things that we have not seen. 
Now, there are certainly proofs for the existence of God. They are as good or better than the proofs for many other things that we take for granted as fact, even though we haven't seen them. Books have been written that argue from science and philosophy and history. But at the end of the day, the reality of it is this. God will not give us all the proof that we want. We must believe in things that we cannot see. Faith will always be required. Several of us have a friend named Ken who was a non-Christian married to one of our church members. I say was because a few years ago he trusted Christ and he became a brother in the Lord. They now live in Kansas. Before his conversion, many people spoke to Ken about Christ over years, over decades, in fact. But he would never take that last step of just trusting in God fully. He always had questions when we'd talk, questions about theology, questions about faith and science, just lots of questions. There was always something that was holding him back from committing to Christ. He want, there just wanted to be one more thing. One day, I think it was when we were backpacking together, just he and I went someplace for a few days. And I said something like this, you know, Ken, God is not going to prove his existence to you. He's just not going to do it. There's plenty of proof for those who are willing to see it. But there will always be more questions. You need to trust what God has said in the scriptures. You need to believe it's true. And one day he did. One day he yielded. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. It will never be any other way. God will not remove faith as the condition for drawing near to him. And that's not mean for God to do that. It's just appropriate because God is greater than us. We might think God is obligated to prove himself to us, but that's to put ourselves in the seat of judgment over God. But we get things backward. God is in the seat of judgment over us. We have to trust him and his word like a child does to a parent. It's just appropriate because he's greater than we are. That's not to discount legitimate questions that people have. It's not to say we don't try to answer those. People have real questions, good questions, like how could a loving God allow so much evil in the world? How can you claim that there's only one way to heaven? Doesn't science disprove the Bible? Doesn't the Bible denigrate women? People have questions, lots of questions, and there are answers to those questions, intellectually and morally satisfying answers. We're not talking about a blind leap of faith. We're talking about a reasonable faith. But none of those answers will prove things not seen. At some point, you have to trust God instead of your own understanding. You don't need to give up your intellect to draw near to God, but you do need to give up your pride. If we would draw near to God, we must believe, number one, that He exists, and number two, that He rewards those who seek Him without having seen everything that we want to see. But that's actually the best thing for us, that we operate by faith. And so let's fill out those two categories with some specifics. This is what is the content of faith. These are articles of faith, big categories. 
but we're going to fill them in with some detail. First of all, faith is the conviction that God exists. Basic starting point. There is a God. That's the assumption behind verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Scripture says God created the universe, not just the world. The universe, the cosmos, as far as we can see and beyond what we can see. If you go back to the Genesis account, the cause behind every material thing that exists was always this. And God said, let there be such and such, and then that thing appeared. Whether that was dry land or water or animals or the stars or even human beings, it was created by the Word of God. How long that process took is an in-house debate. But the truth that cannot be denied if we are to believe the Bible is that God is our creator and the creator of the entire material universe. That truth is the basis for all ethics. If we have a creator, then we are accountable to him. If he has purposes and designs for us, then we are responsible to fulfill those purposes and those designs. His will defines what is right and what is wrong. And that's the only reason that there is such a thing as sin. Because sin is to disobey the Creator's purposes and designs for us. But if there is no Creator, if there is no God, then there is nobody that we're ultimately accountable to, and therefore no such thing as sin, because there's no ultimate morality that we all have to agree on and, and conform to. But the universe was created by the Word of God. So there is a morality that we have to conform to. We are accountable to the God who exists and who created the universe and us. Now, in our day, it's not uncommon for people to think that God doesn't exist because science can explain everything. Faith in God might be a good emotional support for people, but the material universe is all that there is, and everything is everything from the function of a cell to the birth of stars can be explained without any need for a divine cause. But it's a mistake to think that way for two reasons. One is that science actually can't explain everything. It can only explain what it can measure. And I was a scientist. I still think I am. I'm just not doing it on pacemakers anymore, doing it on the Bible. But it can only explain what it can measure. But the thing is, God's existence is unseen and unknowable by scientific instrumentation. So science can't prove or disprove his existence. But second, it is wrong to think that if we somehow know how a thing works then God doesn't need to be involved. Engineers know how an iPhone works, but it is still made by somebody. So it is with the physical universe. It is infinitely more complex, more, more fine-tuned, more awe-inspiring than an iPhone, and that's because it has a creator. It was created 
by the Word of God. That's why it's there. But we ultimately know that by faith. The conviction of things not seen. It's by faith that we can say along with Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, not just the glory of a material, inanimate universe, but the glory of God. That's why I'm excited to see the pictures that are coming back now from the James Webb Space Telescope. It's a million miles from here. I just think it's fascinating how they put that thing in a place where it's going to stay in orbit and we're going to be able to get stuff back from it. Anyway, it's starting to show infrared pictures of the universe. I mean, it's beautiful. You know why I'm excited about that? I get to see more glory. More of God's glory. <laughs> it's fascinating. The fact is also, most scientists who made great discoveries in the past were not atheists. I learned that from a course in a secular university when I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. History of Science was the name of the course. They weren't atheists. There's no ultimate conflict between faith and science. If science and the Bible don't agree, it's either because of bad science or bad theology, and usually both. They don't actually have a contradiction. So, first article of faith is that God exists. The second one from verse 6 is that God rewards those who seek Him. That's equally important to believe. Not only does He exist, but He is of a generous and rewarding nature to those who trust in Him. Remember, this letter was written to Christians who were having their property plundered, who endured hard struggles with suffering, who were sometimes publicly exposed to reproach and affliction because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And when you're in a situation like that, though it is good to know that God exists, it is equally important to know that He will reward you for your faithfulness, though you struggle. Nobody's encouraged by a God who is there, but who doesn't have anything to do with you, or worse, who is against you. But an article of the Christian faith is that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. You will not be disappointed for following Christ in this world. Verse 2 introduces the concept to us. It says, For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. That is their commendation from God. Commendation is praise. God saw the faith of the people of old, the ones who trusted him throughout history, many of whose names are recorded in this chapter, and they received his praise. They received his, his smile. They received his peace and his welcome and his blessing, his favor. Every one of them became enrolled in this chapter's so-called hall of faith. Every one of them was rewarded in some way. We have three examples in our passage. Each of them points to some aspect of the reward that we, as believers in Christ, will ultimately re receive. So let's look at them at it one at a time. The first example is Abel, from verse 4. Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. 
And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Abel's an interesting person to start this list off with. You notice that it doesn't start with Adam. (laughs) That gives rise to the possibility, maybe the probability, that Adam was not an example of faith and did not preserve his soul, to use Hebrews 10 language. Adam is mainly known for his sin in the Scripture. But in any case, the list starts with Abel. Abel, who is the second child born to Eve, the first generation of mankind born to woman. And Abel did something that demonstrated faith in God. He offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, his brother. Now that's described in Genesis chapter 4. Cain brought to God an offering of the fruit from the ground because he worked the fields. But Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions because he was a keeper of sheep. So what seems to differentiate the sacrifice of Abel from that of Cain is that word firstborn. Abel didn't just give God a lamb, but he gave him the firstborn lamb. That has echoes of commitment to the Lord, bringing God the first fruits of what he has. Cain's offering isn't described as first fruits. It's just an offering. To put it plainly, Abel gave his sacrifice out of devotion, while Cain seemed to give his out of duty. Their hearts toward God were different, which becomes clear when Cain later kills his brother out of hatred. So the first example of faith that we have in the Hall of Faith is an act of worship. By faith, Abel did this. Both Cain and Abel believed God existed. They both offered a sacrifice. But only Abel was devoted to God in worship. Only only Abel was seeing God as this trustworthy, generous, rewarding person that he is. And he worshipped him for it. And what was Abel's reward? Through his faith, God commended him as righteous. Now that is very significant. The first example of faith that we have in this chapter, in fact, the first example of faith we have in human history is an example of a principle that is central to the gospel of our salvation in Christ. It's the principle that we are saved by faith and not by works. He was counted as righteous by faith. If you know the New Testament at all, you know that that is a theme throughout the New Testament when it reflects on what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. Ultimately, it was to count us righteous in His righteousness. By faith, the people of old received their commendation from God. That's the first place we see it here. It was by faith that God praised them. And now by faith, Abel offers a sacrifice, and he's commended as righteousness. Righteousness comes through faith. It has always been that way from the very first generation of the world. That didn't start with the cross, but the cross is where it came into full flower, full revelation. Here's how it works. And so the New Testament puts it this way, the righteous shall live by faith, from Romans 1. By grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians 2. 
We know a person is not justified or declared righteous by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ from Galatians 2. Paul's prayer was that I might be found in him, that is in Christ, not having righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, Philippians 3. Abel is our first example of this principle. Through his faith, Abel still speaks, it says. His life is an example of a timeless principle that God will count you righteous, count you as sinless, count you as obedient perfectly through faith. In ancient days, it was faith in this Creator who made a promise that He would one day crush the serpent's head through an offspring of Eve, that He was going to destroy the works of the devil and restore a people and His creation the way He intended them to be. And now on this side of the cross... That faith is in that serpent crusher who is now revealed as the person of Jesus Christ who bore our guilt and our penalty that we might be restored. The most important reward of faith, if we can use that word reward, is to be declared righteous by God, forgiven our sin, positive righteousness given to us, peace with God. That's what we get, but we get it through faith. So Paul said to the jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Faith is the key that unlocks the door to all of God's blessings in this life and the next. So is that your faith this morning? I hope so. I pray that it will be. If it is your belief, then what was true of Abel is also true of you through your faith you are commended by God as righteous. You are. Your individual name can be listed here in this chapter. <laughs> the next example of faith is Enoch. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commanded as having pleased God. Now, here's another person of old whom God was pleased with through his faith. Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. This man never died. Think about that. This guy never died. That's better than resurrection. Because in resurrection, you've got to die first, and who wants that? I think of the David Crowder lyric, one of his songs, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Like, that's true. Right? Enoch can say, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> he experienced life on earth and then life with God with no death in between. That is great. But why did that happen to him? By faith. By faith he was taken up so that he should not see death. Genesis 3.24 adds more information. It says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He walked with God. That means his life was oriented toward God. He, he lived in what would later be called the fear of the Lord, 
this ongoing awareness that God is present in all of his attributes, his sovereign purposes, his good power, his justice, his steadfast love. Enoch lived out that kind of faith. And then one day, when he was 365 years old, according to Genesis, he had walked with God for centuries, God said, I think I'm going to skip death with this guy. <laughs> I'm not going to make him go through that process. What, wow, what a gift. It says so much about God that he would do that. There isn't anything that God could not spare us from if it were in our best interests. He can even spare us from death. Now, other than Elijah, many years later, who went up in a chariot, he hasn't done that since Enoch. <laughs> he didn't do it before Enoch either. In fact, Abel, though he had exemplary faith, he ended up getting killed by his own brother. Faith doesn't mean you won't suffer, even suffer death. But it does mean, to use Paul's language in 1 Corinthians 15, that death has lost its sting for the believer. What happened to Enoch is a foretaste of what God is going to do for all believers in Christ. Namely, bring us to himself in eternal life. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 says, When Jesus returns, the dead will rise first, that is, the dead in Christ. Then we who are alive, who are left, and he's still talking about believers, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord, just like Enoch. So person number two in the Hall of Faith is another example of gospel hope. It's the hope of eternal life with God. That's one of those things hoped for that we are to have assurance about and say, I know this is going to happen. We will always be with the Lord. That's good news. For believers in a world where you suffer for following Jesus, because this is how your story ends, no matter how much bad stuff happens in this life. It will always end with being with the Lord in glory, in paradise, ultimately in a restored creation where there's nothing that can ever make you sad again. The last example is Noah. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So here's the short story of Noah. Because of the pervasive wickedness of every man, woman, and child on earth, God said to Noah in Genesis 6:17, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. So the flood was God's judgment on wickedness. He was going to start over with Noah's family, not because he didn't have his own sin, which we find out after he lands and he gets drunk, after he plants a vineyard. So he wasn't really righteous in himself, but God said, I'm going to start over with you. And also going to save all the species of every animal as well. So he commands Noah to build an ark, which is just this giant rectangular box that floats. 
That's all it was for. It was not a sailing vessel. Um, it wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> it was just going to float. And then Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Now that took the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen for him to do that. Because it took Noah 100 years to build that big box. And he was building it on land. And its only purpose was to float. So if there's not a great big flood, this box is useless and it's ridiculous. You just wasted 100 years of your life. But he had faith in things hoped for and things not seen. He built in faith. And then everything turned out exactly as God said. The flood came. Noah and his family were saved out of the water. His immediate reward for his faith was he and his family and all the animals survived. But more than that, it says Noah became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is another instance of that principle that righteousness comes by faith and not by works. He builds the boat. He obeys God. But the text says he became an heir of righteousness by faith. But notice that Noah's faith, like that of Abel and Enoch, was not a faith without works. In fact, it was by their actions that they demonstrated the reality of their faith. Abel offered a sacrifice to God. Enoch walked with God. Noah built an ark. Those are actions. Genuine faith that inherits righteousness from God is faith that does the righteous things God wants us to do. James said the same thing in his letter. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Answer, no, that faith can't save him because that faith isn't genuine faith. It's only genuine faith if it makes you do the works that God wants you to do. The faith that saves is a faith that works, just like the faith of Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Now, there's one more thing we can learn from Noah's example, and this is for the encouragement of those who follow Christ and suffer for it. Think about Noah's situation. The whole world is wicked, violence everywhere. In Genesis 6, it says, Every intention of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. You're living in that world. That's worse than the world we live in right now. So he's the only one. He's... he's, he's Building this boat is taking 100 years. This whole thing is for nothing unless God is real and what he says is going to happen. And you're going to feel like that sometime. You're going to feel like you're the only one who's following the Lord. That your lifestyle seems ridiculous to everybody like building a boat on dry land. You're going to be tempted to give up, to second guess, to question, am I doing the right thing? So what do you do? You do like Noah did. You keep trusting in what God has said despite circumstances. You don't lean on your own understanding, but you trust God. The things that he's told you he's going to do, put your hope there. Be sure that the unseen things are real. Believe the storyline that John describes in his first letter. The world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
So we stay on course and we believe. And we know that we're on the right track when we do that. Let me just close with this. We learn from verse 2 that we receive God's commendation, His praise and His favor, His blessing by faith. Verse 6 tells us the flip side of that truth. The first part of it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So there's a lot of things that you can do without faith. Without faith, you can become a billionaire. Without faith, you can become the most powerful person in the world. Without faith, you can live a long life. You can have a successful career. You can have kids and possessions and seem to do pretty well for yourself. But there's one thing you can't do without faith, and that is please God. But faith does please God. Faith in God and in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ, is the key that unlocks all of His blessings to us. It doesn't need to be perfect faith. Never wavering, never misguided. Nobody has that kind of faith. It doesn't need to be perfect faith. It just needs to be genuine faith in the things God has said we should hope for. And in the things that He has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, the things we can't see because we weren't there, but we believe them to be true. We believe there's life in Jesus. That was God's promise to us. And so we're hoping for that resurrection, all because God says so. And that pleases God, and that is the key to blessing, trusting in Him. As we exercise that faith, as we walk with God like the people of old, be sure you will have your reward. Many have done it before us, and they're enjoying their reward now, and so will you. Let's pray. We need eyes to see, Lord, since it's not visible, and yet there's so much evidence once your Holy Spirit enlightens us. We do see the heavens are telling of the glory of God. We see your glory in the love that exists between believers. We see your glory in transformed lives. You give us eyes to see. Lord, we ask that you'd help us to see it more and to believe. We pray like the one man who said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Give us a stronger confidence day by day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.